Welcome to Pedagogue, a podcast about teachers talking writing. I'm your host, Shane Wood. In this episode, Millie Heiser talks about disability studies and disability rhetorics, academic ableism, rhetorical tactics of resistance, storytelling, and accessibility. Millie Heiser is a PhD candidate in rhetoric and composition at Indiana University, Bloomington. Her dissertation examines how disabled students and faculty in higher education navigate academic ableism through embodied rhetorical tactics of resistance. She is also a co-chair of the Graduate Student Standing Group for the 2023 Conference on College Composition and Communication. Her writing has been published in Enculturation, a journal of rhetoric, writing, and culture, and is forthcoming in the Journal of Multimodal Rhetorics and Spark, a 4C4 equality journal. You can follow her on Twitter, at MillieH27. Millie, thanks so much for joining us. I'm interested in what encouraged or who inspired you to get a PhD in rhetoric and composition. So this really kind of starts um, when I was in high school and I was a high school debater and I did Lincoln Douglas debate. And I was really, really interested in public discourse and, you know, the ways in which discourse can shape policy and change and, you know, meaningful social action. Um, and so this sort of carried into my, um, my undergraduate degree at the University of Florida, where I studied English and I minored in Russian. Um, and so I really became kind of even more interested in, you know, the way language and writing shapes the world around us. So, you know, when I was kind of trying to decide what I wanted to do, um, you know, after my undergraduate, RETCOMP kind of, um, I had some awesome mentors that sort of directed me um, in that direction. And it really kind of allowed me to reconcile my sort of different interests in contemporary issues and, you know, um, policy change and public discourse with my love of writing and um, my love of kind of, you know, seeing how writing can shape the world around us. Add in my kind of current focus um, and interest in disability, um, disability rhetoric and, you know, disability studies at the intersection of CompRet. And this is, um, I just, you know, really kind of feel like I found something that I love, love And um, yeah, so I'm so excited to um, just be able to talk and research and and think about all of these things. Millie, how did you get interested in disability studies or what made you take that direction in grad school? Yeah, so um, I am um, multiply disabled. um, And that um, when I was in... um, when I was in my secondary education, um, when I was a teenager, I experienced um, really, really um, blatant ableism and discrimination um, based on um, a lot of people didn't think that um, there was, you know, sometimes there's this misconception that people who are quote unquote you know, smart or high achieving um, can't have disabilities. And so this is something that I've kind of always been sort of working against um, my whole entire life. And so when I came into graduate school, I was like, well, I need to write a dissertation on something that's going to interest me and that I can become passionate about. And so, you know, I started reading works like this is probably the end of my first year of my combined master's PhD program. 
at Indiana University Bloomington. I sort of started reading like Jay Dolmage and, um, you know, Stephanie Kirschbaum, Margaret Price. And I was like, wow, this is the type of work that I want to do. And so then it sort of, you know, kind of evolved from there. And I was able to sort of write my own story into that work. And so here I am. This is what I this is what I research and study and do. And I, I, I really enjoy it. So your teaching and research focus on academic ableism, and I was hoping you could give some examples of academic ableism and some ways teachers and students might navigate academic ableism. Academic ableism is kind of built around this idea that, you know, if we're talking about higher education specifically, that, you know, higher education or education in general was not built for, you know, neurodivergent disabled body minds. And so, you know, essentially um, education kind of just by its nature excludes people with disabilities. And so again, I kind of give credit to scholars, you know, Jay Dolmage, um, Margaret Price, Kirschbaum, um, as well as um, Christina Cedillo, Ada Hubrick, um, some of these amazing scholars have really kind of helped shape how I see this. Academic ableism can take a variety of forms. Personally, um, one thing that I mentioned before are kind of misconceptions that teachers or even graduate students and, you know, certain faculty can have about graduate students with disabilities. You know, for instance, um, saying, well, they don't look disabled, so therefore they shouldn't have accommodations. But kind of like at a larger scale, academic ableism kind of can take place at a really systemic kind of institution scale, getting academic accommodations is incredibly difficult. I personally had to go to three different specialists in order to get the documentation to get the accommodations that I have. And that is not accessible for a lot of people, especially, um, you know, especially with, um, you know, healthcare being, you know, being the way it is in the United States. And um, it is incredibly difficult to, um, to prove that you have accommodations or that you need accommodations. So academic ableism works first at this kind of institutional level where people who need accommodations can't get accommodations. And then you really get to like a pedagogical level where academic ableism can take place. So this can be something as simple as a teacher um, on a Zoom class, you know, refusing to put closed captioning on, you know, on on the lecture, if, you know, especially after a student, you know, because we all make, I make, I make mistakes with accessibility as a teacher. We're all human. But, you know, if someone points that out and just blatantly kind of like refusing to, you know, refusing to do that. Or, you know, another sort of thing that can oftentimes take place are blatant refusals to accommodate. There have been instances where I have just had to drop a class because I've talked with an instructor and told them my access needs and they've been like, we can't do that in that in this class. And so I've had to rearrange my schedule for that. So there's also kind of that tension. There's also kind of this idea kind of moving into the part like ways, you know, teachers and students can kind of navigate this. 
I think it's important that, especially, you know, I think um, within our field as, you know, as teachers of writing and rhetoric, that we really recognize that there are going to be students in our classes who need accommodations, but are not able to get accommodations. So what this really means is, um, you know, especially like in, in my classes, um, even if a student doesn't have official sort of documentation, I listen. And if someone says, I need an extension, I need, you know, I, I could you offer this in a different modality? I want to do my final project as a multimedia project because that's more accessible to me. I listen. And um, so that's, you know, that's kind of, um, and then of course, you know, as students and disabled faculty to make sure, you know, being aware of your rights under the ADA and, you know, what, um, because you're entitled to, to access to this space of higher education. Your dissertation examines embodied rhetorical tactics of resistance. Can you explain this, this concept or, or term and I'm wondering how your research confronts and, and accounts for power in academia. For example, I'm, I'm thinking about the cost of resistance for someone like a graduate student and positionalities like adjunct versus tenure track faculty. So kind of this idea embodied rhetorical tactics of resistance, um, and it's continually evolving throughout, um, you know, my dissertation writing project, but how I really see this, um, I see this as kind of situated within the idea that existing is resisting in higher education. So, you know, kind of simply by, um, you know, being in higher education at, you know, disabled students and faculty um, are existing sort of this system or resisting this system that um, wasn't originally built for them. So especially in terms of embodiment, um, you know, I'm working in conversation with, um, you know, scholars like Jay Dolmage, who, you know, really characterized rhetoric as um, rhetoric as embodied, something that um, something that is not, you know, is not divorced from our body minds and our, you know, situatedness within um, the academy. So really what embodied rhetorical tactics are, um, they're the everyday ways that we move in the academy. So this might come in the form of um, adapting what we disclose um, within certain rhetorical situations. This is a very embodied experience. You go to a certain class and you don't feel comfortable within this, you know, with a particular instructor disclosing your, um, you know, like Tara Woods says, um, disclosures, you know, fraught with risk. And so it's really kind of navigating this through our own embodied senses um, how we're existing and surviving within higher education. It also sort of um, is inspired by Desert Ho, um, you know, tactics versus strategies. 
um, you know, strategies are, of course, more, you know, kind of institutionally, um, you know, driven, whereas tactics are, you know, kind of more everyday sort of, um, you know, acts of um, acts of resistance. So, um, you know, this can really just be kind of like um, even tying in, you know, Margaret Price's idea of like chirotic, you know, spaces. Um, these interactions don't have to be, you know, huge or anything that, um, you know, maybe we wouldn't really um, think of it as, um, as, you know, a tactic, something like, um, you know, saying, you know what, this is the best chirotic moment to talk to my instructor about my disability. Or, you know, I want to construct myself in this space or present myself as a disabled, you know, student in this space within this manner. So the way kind of how this sort of ties into, um, you know, thinking about the cost of resistance for someone like graduate students or adjunct, the more contingent your position is within the academy, the riskier it is to openly be, um, you know, to openly be disabled. And, and so I really see this kind of tied with the identity that you are allowed to kind of present, you know, depending on your positionality within the academy. And so, um, you know, people who I, you know, um, you think about, you know, as you grow as a scholar, you can become more comfortable comfortable sharing certain things in your scholarship and growing. And so I think it's a really interesting kind of kind of tension. Um, even just as a graduate student now, you know, technically I am, you know, it is quote unquote risky um, to be so open as I am about my, um, you know, my disabilities. But I also think it's important to kind of cultivate a culture of openness because there's so many people who are, um, you know, who are struggling and who, you know, don't fit that mold of a tenure track or a you know tenured faculty member and i think we need to open up this space millie you said this so nicely that existing is resisting which is really profound and you write about storytelling you write about anti-ableist activism and how disabled graduate student narratives can help reimagine accessibility in higher education can you talk more about this writing? Yeah, um, so I currently have a forthcoming um, project with two other absolutely um, amazing scholars, um, Meredith Person and Megan Bronson. Um, and we connected originally through Twitter, which was a really, it's a really interesting, um, we talk about this in our forthcoming piece um, a little bit, but really what we do in this piece um, is we share our lived experiences with ableism in higher education and we sort of um, posit that you know lived experiences are the best way to learn what needs to change in higher education storytelling can kind of be you know alice wong um, talks about this in their edited collection disability visibility but you know storytelling can kind of be an entry point for, you know, really understanding accessibility. Um, you know, disabled people are experts on accessibility. That's not to say we all, you know, we're experts on our own accessibility. And so that's why I think 
um, you know, because we always have things to learn. I, I'm continually learning about how to be, you know, a more, a more, um, you know, empathetic, empathetic and accessible, um, you know, teacher scholar. But coming back to storytelling, um, stories really are an entry point for better understanding, um, you know, the the sort of system and you know what what kind of cracks are within the system. Um, there's also a beautiful piece um, in the Journal of Multimodal Rhetorics that we cite, um, Jess Rice Evans and Andrea Stella, um, The Invisible Labor of Traumatized Doctoral Students. And we sort of kind of draw on that and scholars like Christina Cedillo, Ada Hubrig, who really are open about their stories of disability. And, you know, um, kind of recognizing that stories are in lived experience are that's that's important to better understanding um better understanding kind of this system especially in our positionality as you know graduate students who are in a really liminal position between student and faculty we're not we're not we're not quite students especially once you you know start the dissertation phase but we're also we don't have the you know the same privileges as faculty do so um it's a really really complex kind of tension that also goes back to the you know overarching um system you know system of power and hierarchy within um within higher education thanks millie and thank you pedagogue listeners and followers until next time